Hi there. I'm Wyatt Stahl, and I'm here to reveal what SICD technology is, where it's headed, and most importantly, why you should be paying attention. This episode is an excerpt of the recent interview I had with Dr. Martin C. Burke. And if you're anything like me, I know you'll find this interview to be an exciting glimpse into some of the real-world impacts of SICD technology. And as a matter of disclosure, Dr. Burke is a consultant with Boston Scientific. This is Leading the Charge. First off, would you be so kind as to introduce yourself? Yes, hello. I'm Martin Burke, a electrophysiologist in Chicago. I have spent my life dealing with arrhythmias, tachy and Brady. I was an early adopter of the subcutaneous ICD and have seen this type of therapy expand. I think the platform is here to stay, and it's been my privilege to be a part of it. Well, Dr. Burke, I'd like to talk to you about patient selection. Now, what's a typical patient age at implant for you today with the SICD system? Yeah, so my age group, even initially, Wyatt, you know, in the IDE study, we implanted 38 devices in our center, and the age ranged from 18 to 83. Mm -hmm. Our mean age was 56 right away, which was very similar to what you were seeing at the time with primary prevention transvenously. If you look at the IDE study itself, though, the age was lower in the low 40s. And that was because this is obviously an amazing device for channelopathy patients, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy patients, and younger patients in general. But I have no target age, to be honest with you. So what you're saying is that today with this data, you can move the SICD from being a niche product to being the norm. I think so. I mean, I, I really think that the SICD as a platform is your go-to platform right off the bat. The only group that you would exclude for their initial device would be patients with heart failure and conduction system disease that requires resynchronization therapy. And what you're looking at is a lifelong therapy where you're able to give patients safety and efficacy that's never been seen before with the transvenous or the epicardial systems that have been in development over the last 40 years. Okay, wow. And I think that the time is right now with all of the different technological aspects of the device being coalesced into modular therapies, the data sets coming out of Praetorian, Praetorian XL, Praetorian DFT, untouched, are all really driving a great story that says that there are very few patients that you should exclude from the population that should receive an SICD. So how has the implanter community's view of the SICD suitability changed in recent years? If you look at the SICD as a disruptive technology in defibrillation, it's really taken a typical path in terms of adoption where the early adopters were great at leading the charge in terms of the SICD adoption and regulatory pathway. And you want to try to move the curve into that bell-shaped position where uh, the SICD should be right now after about 10 years of commercial availability. Mm -hmm. So I think what we're looking for here is to move the dial, get adoption to where it should be at 10 years, really focus hard on 
the uh, younger electrophysiologists coming out because they're the ones that have the ability to move the dial on that. So in a way, it's, it's the SICD is no longer just for younger patients, but we may have to do much more education for younger EPs to understand that. That's absolutely right. I, I think it's going to take some time to move through training programs and to get the staff and the EP labs up and running. We need to continue to evangelize this data and really push hard in the training programs. I see that in the community hospitals right now where there's certain multiple patients that are ideal for this device and have a very good long-term prospect with having a subcutaneous device versus a transvenous. What we need to do now is to show the dramatic benefits that the SICD can have to the patients to make sure that there's a clear understanding that it's almost the wrong decision to do a transvenous single lead in patients across the board in upwards to 90% of the patients. Are there any misconceptions about the suitability and or patient selection for the SICD that you encounter pretty regularly? So the two major things that I think have to do with the SICD limited adoption rate in certain centers. One is the size of the device and the implant uh, technique. And then two is this continuing prejudice related to anti-tachycardiopacing. The size of the device makes some implanters feel that they can have a better patient comfort compared to the uh, traditional single chamber transvenous device that's used in the subclavian position. But to be honest with you, this is a prejudice that's not really well-founded in any of the clinical studies and the interactions that we've had with the patients over the last 10 years. The next one is anti-tachycardia pacing, which is really a, uh, a major prejudice that's largely never been proven to be of particular benefit to the patients from a mortality standpoint. There are certain patients who have reproducible monomorphic ventricular tachycardia that can benefit from anti-tachycardia pacing. I think there's going to be a lot more data coming out in ATP this year coming forward from the Praetorian study. Okay. I think that this particular device platform will eventually be able to morph into a mothership type of node concept where you are able to get all of the pacing that you need with minimal invasion of the vascular space. Furthermore, I will tell you that that prejudice can be overcome very simply if you have a robust ventricular tachycardia ablation program. In some of these patients, we were able to provide ablation therapy for them prior to the SICD implant because we knew that they had monomorphic ventricular tachycardia and altering their scar uh, from an ablation standpoint, it was extremely successful at minimizing their need for any type of shock therapy uh, over the next five years. When you actually talk to a patient before a procedure and discuss with them transvenous versus SICD and show devices, what kind of response do you get? What type of questions come about? And and also like to know, are there differences you'll see in uh, men versus women with some of these questions you ask? Yeah, I mean, there's always differences depending on the gender. 
I think women, especially younger women, are much more interested in not having something anteriorly in their chest, you know, which you can get away with by making an inframammary incision and tunneling down to that. So you're really not making much of a difference there. But what they really have a commonality about is they don't want anything in their heart. And so that's the first differential that I discuss with the patients when I'm discussing transvenous versus SICD. And that is so important because when these patients were interviewed ages ago, patients that had both devices, what they said is, we don't want either device. And that's the one big illusion. It's like, oh, transvenous, no problem. Everyone, you know, no one even noticed it there. No, they all notice any device is there. (laughs) But when they compare the two, they didn't find that the transvenous device was notably better than the SICD. They found the SICD was actually pretty reasonable. That's absolutely right. Furthermore, you know, like a lot of my patients early on were coming to me because of infection. And if you get an SICD after an extraction for infection, whether it's a pocket infection or uh, endocarditis, you have a very low mortality rate. And if you have the transvenous lead extracted because of failure of the lead where it broke, you know, such as in the Fidelis and the Riata extravaganza, and you got an SICD for that, then you had zero mortality over a three-year period. In what ways have the published clinical data contributed to the evolution of the SICD therapy? So the concept here is that you have a bevy of data now that we didn't have 10 years ago to discuss ins and outs of decision-making with the transvenous versus the subcutaneous ICD. Even with the pooled data to the post-approval study and effortless, you're getting a lot of data already that says that there's a much broader patient population and that these patients did well. When we're looking at the clinical trials that have now come out with untouched and with Praetorian, untouched demonstrated that this can really be your mainstream device in the majority of patients that are at risk for sudden cardiac death in a primary prevention population. The Praetorian study demonstrated that this was really an important device platform from a complication-free rate for patients. These studies are out there and they really are profound in driving our utilization of this platform moving forward. That's very interesting. Could you expand more and explain a little bit more about that to us? You're getting head-to-head randomized data that is demonstrating some very particular things that should be in the mind of the implanter as they make these discussions with patients. And they should present them in a data-minded way because patients get that. And I don't think that you want to you know, distinguish one to the other, but there is now much more data in support of the SICD than there ever has been. Thank you very, very much. Next time on Leading the Charge, we continue our multi-part discussion with Dr. Burke. But for now, that'll about do it. Thanks for joining me in Leading the Charge. I'm Wyatt Stahl. Until next time.